Cool. Michael here, signing in on mic number two. All right, Christopher here. Uh, with the one, the only, the great man, uh, the weirdo from the internet that I met and befriended a few years ago, uh, Michael Hayes. Um, Michael, how are you this evening? I'm doing pretty, pretty good. Uh, excited to start getting a lot of our thoughts here uh, on a hard drive, uh, on the cloud, mm-hmm. getting them down. We've been talking about this for a long time, haven't we? Indeed, yeah. Uh, I I do feel like, you know, maybe not intentionally, but this these sort of issues they they dominate our conversations. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing to be. I, I think not, it's not a bad thing to be dwelling on some uh, controversial topics and some you know pressing issues that, that the city is faced with and that the people of the city are faced with. It does seem depressing uh, thinking at it, thinking about that from uh, from a third party perspective. Is that this is this is something that that consumes a lot of our mental space, um, which you could think you would think might be a little bit overwhelming. But uh, I'm happy. I'm happy that both of us can discuss it productively. I, I feel like, yeah, I mean, I feel like we do, as I've mentioned before, I feel like we do really care about these issues and uh, someone dedicating this much mental effort to a solution uh, between the two of us. I mean, I, I feel like there's some some real positivity that could come from uh, from discussing it, from, from talking about it, from thinking about it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, literally every conversation I have in L.A. now, almost every conversation, yeah. if it's long enough, it will lead to homelessness. Yeah. This is on everyone's mind. It's something that is inescapable living in California cities uh, and more and more uh, cities all over the country. Yeah. This is a national problem, but it's particularly intense in California. Yes, yeah. C- California has 25 percent of all of the nation's homeless, and they tend to concentrate in big urban centers. And these are, this is some of otherwise the most valuable, productive real estate on the planet. Mm. And uh, millions of people live here, and we keep uh, compartmentalizing this problem and doing what we can to avoid it. And uh, critically, uh, you and I have uh, often discussed this. The discourse tends to be very. Um, what, what what is the best way to describe it? It's very social justice oriented. It can oftentimes be very naive. It could be well intentioned, but uh, you and I both work in construction and real estate, and we're confronted with the hard numbers, and we. We follow the trade publications. We we see the stuff that comes online, or the developments that come online, and what the final cost is per unit. And we're talking over half a million dollars a unit just to house a single person. Uh, in San Francisco, like the numbers sometimes get up to eight hundred thousand. That's wild, <laughs> and it's uh, it's clearly if anyone takes an honest, sober look at the numbers of people we're, we're talking about. Uh, Upwards of sixty thousand people in LA County, uh, and yeah. I, I I don't know what the latest numbers are in San Francisco, but you can just do the math. You will not solve this problem, especially considering all the red tape and the bureaucracy and the neighborhood pushback. Uh, we cannot effectively house people 
in affordable housing at scale in the city centers. So let's talk about what we can actually do to one, make our cities a bit more livable, more humane for the people that have to go to work uh, and live around this problem, as well as for the people that are actually experiencing this problem firsthand. The, the unhoused in our city, uh, oftentimes some folks with mental health or substance abuse issues, and uh, they don't always show up on the street like that. Uh, some folks take it down on their luck and uh, end up on the street. They, all, they oftentimes think it's going to be a temporary thing. And then life is incredibly difficult. Well, being unhoused in this country and in big urban centers where it's so common can be especially brutalizing. The amount of contempt the average person might feel for the unhoused is palpable. People don't want to look at you. Uh, people might be very aggressive or dismissive of you. Uh, yeah, that, That's intensely brutalizing on a human being's psyche. So, which perpetuates the problem. I mean, you mm -hmm. feel like that it's not something uh, that is a secret, but the, yet there's there's a certain, obviously, a certain visible stigma to being homeless. Uh, that that if you were to be in their shoes for even a day, I feel like the average person would be inclined uh, to go to a liquor store and buy a bottle, or to pay twenty bucks for some substance that would alleviate a lot of their problems, or at least. Uh, at least that perception uh, that they've that that has been assigned to them by the general population, thinking, "Oh, this person is just you know, it's they're they're uh, a drag on society." And so, you know, yeah, it's just it's it's challenging. Once you're out there, I feel like it's really hard to to come back from that. And uh, current current laws in the, in the state of California and current um, yeah, the current climate is just it makes it more challenging than it needs to be to get these people help and to get them back uh, into a safer environment, one that is better for them and better for uh, the city as a whole. So uh, back when you were discussing the rough numbers, I, I just pulled up the calculator and did uh, did some math. And at 600,000-ish a unit um, with the amount of people that are just in Los Angeles, I think the numbers are higher because of COVID this year, but we're looking at close to 70,000 people that have experienced homelessness uh, in the past year, and that's a $45 billion price tag to get these people back in houses, which, uh, as you alluded to, is just an insane amount of money, um, considering, I mean, that's that's almost what you could buy. It wouldn't be in a desirable area, but that's that's almost what you could buy a regular house for as, a, mm -hmm. as someone that's making a decent income in Los Angeles. I mean, the median house price is pretty high, but... For five or six hundred thousand dollars, I mean, you could get a fixer upper, but still, it's 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 a lot of money. It's way more money uh, to spend per unit than than should be uh, than necessary. Uh, so that's something that I feel like we will uh, hopefully address in more detail mm -hmm. as we as this conversation evolves. Certainly, yeah. and it's important before we go further into this to say that what we are not, uh, we certainly do not think of ourselves as racist or classist. Um, being Americans, that is unavoidable and to a certain degree. Um, racism is a thing. It's a structural thing. Uh, a, an individual can have unfortunate preconceptions of other people uh, along race or class lines, but 
uh, this is a systemic problem and we can we are here to meaningfully address or at least identify the, the uh, big structural pain points and hopefully we can work towards them and it's something that we're all going to have to make some sort of meaningful sacrifices towards it's going to mean that you know some neighborhoods in la are going to have to have more apartments in fact mo all neighborhoods in la and in california should have more apartments uh, and we should legalize apartments but before we get into that if homelessness is like cancer, uh, homeless individuals are people inflicted with cancer. And in the same way that you can hate cancer, but not hate people with cancer, that's how we approach homelessness. Homelessness is a contemptible malady on our society. It's an awful thing. It dehumanizes all of us. We hate homelessness, as should you. We do emphatically do not hate the homeless. And we have a lot of sympathy and compassion for them but also in the same way that my father if, if he knew I was homeless uh, would do whatever he could to help me but that doesn't mean uh, enabling me sometimes the best thing you could do for a person is give them structure and discipline and uh, set boundaries and people will, most people that are of uh, sound mind will uh, understand boundaries and work around them. And if, and if they're appropriate, they can be lifted up. It's a carrot and stick approach. You do not want to enable all of their worst tendencies, but you also want to give them a lifeline to lift them up. So we'll hopefully get into that. But Michael, it's it seems fair to say that you and I uh, was was there was there anything more you'd like? Oh to no, say I mean just, it, yeah, uh, very well said. I just feel like to 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 reiterate, it's it's us here, um, yeah, hating homelessness, not hating the homeless. Uh, I feel like that's a very important distinction, and I'm I'm glad you came up with that analogy because it's it's something that I feel like it is so sensitive, uh, and and yeah, we're out here trying to as tactfully as we can address the problem because you and i were both urbanists we love and are fascinated by cities and cities are places where people can uh, uh go out with other people uh find their tribe on earth they can uh the, they, they can they can find careers find self-actualization lift uh, themselves uh, and their standing in life yeah. and um, and we want to create dynamic fun equitable environments where people feel comfortable walking around taking public transportation enjoying the park on a sunny day uh, these are all things that become more difficult with the level of homelessness that we are experiencing currently yeah that's that's a, a another good point it's uh, both of us, I, I think, are drawn to an urban environment because of the uh, the dynamic atmosphere that it is often associated with. It's 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 people who talk about their their life experience and their travels around the world. And I always break it down as 
if you're not bragging about the most remote beach or the this pristine mountaintop, you're talking about the great cities of the world, the Paris and Rome and New York and I mean, to a lesser extent, you have places like, you know, Los Angeles, which we agree is, is not the, the greatest city in, in the terms of, an, of a, like an urban environment, but it's, it's a great place. We are both optimistic that it will become much better, uh, a much better city. But people, um, people thrive off the environment that the city represents. Uh, it is the it's high concentration of culture and energy and ambition and excitement. Um, and I, I'm someone that firmly believes that the, that the city is uh, represents the best uh, of the people in uh, you know the uh, the people of the nation. I, I just feel like uh, this is a place where people of all different classes and creeds and colors come together and and work towards something better. And um, and yeah, I, I would I would love to see the city thrive in a way that it has in the past. Um, yeah, and the problems we're facing today need to be need to be addressed, need to be alleviated before the city can really really thrive like it has uh, in previous years. So, and Michael, what's step number one? Step number one, great question. Uh, I'm gonna say yeah. Oh, oops, sorry. Restrictive. Yeah. Uh, hello. What is step number one? Okay, no. I I I, uh, I was thinking step number one would be uh, alleviating uh, the homeless problem but I'm, I'm changing uh, I'm changing my answer here the step number one would be to wait are we doing the restrictive zoning let me let me abundance of housing right oh, okay okay yeah sorry I don't know how this is gonna be cut but yeah um, yeah step number one would be to increase the supply of housing in a nation and particularly in a, in a state and city where uh, housing is at its uh, is unaffordable and not being built quick enough and um, not accessible to the average uh, the average resident of the city. Um, so yes, I would say step number one, uh, getting in there and and supplying a lot more housing. So wh- what what do you imagine a more equitable LA or California to look like? In my in my dream world, uh, this is not. I would say this is not a unique perspective. Uh, a lot of people uh, working in in our state government are champions of higher density housing uh, throughout the state, m- but most specifically around transit. So the the city of Los Angeles and also, I mean, this the, you know other large cities within this within the state, uh, San Francisco and to some extent San Diego have developed. More efficient modes of transportation uh, with mass transit and trolley lines and trams and subways uh, and uh, commuter rails and and all of those things. If I can say em- with emphatically that those all are underutilized because of um, archaic and outdated zoning laws that prevent those transit adjacent parcels to be developed to to reach their full potential. So. We have um, a surprisingly robust network of, of efficient transit lines in the state, and uh, very few of them are, are built out adequately to, to support that system. So um, in my, to answer your question, in my dream world, I, I, would, I would love to see 
even modest density around every single train station um, from you know from San Francisco down to the border of uh, of Mexico and the U.S. down in in Ocajon area. Um, yeah, I, I want to see at least five story development next to every train station within a quarter of a mile. I think that would go a long way in alleviating the housing shortage and getting more people in the state comfortable with uh, with using public transportation, which is, as we both agree, is a lot more efficient and a lot more sustainable. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful thing when it works right and when it works well. And, uh, and, and we have a pretty good foundation here in the state that just doesn't seem to be quite utilized uh, in the best way. So. Right. Uh, for most parts of the state, the common criticism I hear is, oh, public transportation uh, is inadequate. And it is, I would agree that it is inadequate because the way we've built out our urban environments are antithetical to public transit. So we build uh, a train line for billions of dollars and then parts of it, like significant segments of it, will be surrounded by single-family homes. Yeah. And that is... Uh, Unacceptable. Yeah. It, yeah. It, uh, until recently, I mean, anyone that's lived in a place like L.A. for even a few years uh, could could recognize that our our local transit network is is woefully underbuilt um, in terms of the, the the parcels around each station. And the the best example that I had, I, I moved to L.A. in 2014. Uh, not long after the Expo line was extended out to Culver City and then uh, eventually out to Santa Monica. But um, that Culver City station had something close to 2,000 parking spaces, just service lots around the, the terminus of the station. Uh, so you see that. And, and, and of course, that they, they have done quite a bit to, mm -hmm. to develop that area now. But I remember... Uh, before I had a car in Los Angeles, which I didn't have for many years, but I, I would ride my bike from Venice down Venice Boulevard to Culver City um, to jump on the Expo line. That way I could go downtown. And I was like, wow, this is insane. I, I never in a million years would have uh, expected to to have a, a, a rail station that was surrounded um, at hundreds of feet in every direction with parking lots. Mm -hmm. um, so. It's, it's changed quite dramatically. It has. Since yeah, then. yeah, it has. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, for the better, it looks like, dare I say, a real city now. Yeah. Uh, you you go to um, the Culver Station, you got, got the line development. Uh, uh, Platform. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's yeah, Cumulus. There's there's quite a bit happening in Culver City, which is, which is very, um, I, I feel optimistic for, for Culver City specifically as a leader in the region because they've really embraced a walkable density and um, that, that transit adjacent development or transit oriented development um, that, uh, that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of urban planners, a lot of urbanists have been trying to, to push that agenda, uh, you know, in earnest for the last five years, but for, you know, in the, in the grand scheme and for much longer. So, and, uh, Throughout California's cities, uh, we have various different programs that ha include affordable units for these big developments, uh, and that it it expands the uh, number of units that are market rate for uh, for people that could afford uh, afford to afford those units, 
And then you also have a not insignificant amount of deed-restricted affordable housing at, at least 55 years uh, where people making anywhere from 40 to 80% of area median income uh, are able to rent those apartments and use public transportation and get around LA and get, get to work without needing a car. Mm. And so this seems to be the future of LA, of California, and I, I hope more so around the country. Yes. It's like we, LA is built out. We've cannibalized all of the possible open space there is. Uh, everything that's not mountain or ocean, we've developed on. So, like, the land is accounted for. And so now we need denser infill development. And if we zone for inclusive housing, mixed income housing, or even provide incentives uh, for folks, uh, for developers, okay, you can build 50% more units, but we want 15% of that new number, or maybe 20% sure. of that new number, to be set aside for people making this much per year, uh, a lot of developers will take it. Yeah, it, The numbers pencil out, and that is more effectively uh, contributing to our affordable housing stock than... Uh, yeah, purpose-built affordable housing that's priced way too high right. for it to be effective. And, and crucially, this costs the city or the state effectively zero yeah uh, like it, it privately uh, financed i mean it, it, you are creating incentives for a private developer to build housing that just so happens to have a percentage of that affordable but you're not necessarily requiring the state to pay or the government to pay into that construction i mean you're just you're creating opportunities for them to satisfy that need which mm -hmm. is great yep so that is a crucial piece of the puzzle and if we develop more densely along places like West LA. Oh, West LA has tons of the region's uh, like uh, most productive industries uh, and, and firms, but you have to drive across the county into West LA to work there. And so this creates the big traffic nightmare uh, where if you create more apartments, uh, especially adjacent the transit and they're already building more commercial spaces adjacent to transit as well mm. you can create a whole walkable ecosystem exactly uh, along these transit lines that include affordable housing and is is just a very meaningful intuitive uh plug-in to the economy okay uh i'm going to situate my office here because I know that there is going to be affordable units along this train line and I can retain workers and I could pay them uh, a livable salary. They can potentially live without having a car. Yeah. And that is a different paradigm than what we've been doing thus far. And the reason we've been doing it thus far, uh, the, the way it's been going is, this is the story of America, we, uh, home ownership in this country is very high, and historically speaking, 
real estate just keeps going up, 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 up as our population grows. Our housing uh, stock tends to not quite keep up. And so, and that's especially true of cities uh, and urban cores for various reasons from our environmental laws to uh, cost of labor. City centers are much more difficult to build housing at scale enough for all, all the people that want to live and contribute to cities could possibly afford. So we see time and time again, decade after decade, uh, population keeps growing. Our housing production rates keep falling. It becomes more difficult and more expensive to bring more supply to market. And it's, it's largely related and, uh, and due to people tend to uh, lift up the ladder uh, mm. like af after they make it uh, to the top of the mountain where, okay, I bought my home. I don't want more apartments in this neighborhood because that means more traffic. That means more noise. Uh, it might obscure my views. It might, uh, it, it means more of they, and they can always be someone. It could be uh, immigrants. It could be African-Americans. It could be tech bros. It could be people with more money. I, there's always a they. And people are resistant to change. And the more we empower individuals, and uh, this country and California in particular tends to empower individuals to curtail development. And uh, in, in the guise of the environment, yeah. air quotes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... Oh, uh, ironically, it creates very disastrous effects for the environment and it increases the cost of living for everyone. And it's fantastic if you could afford it, especially if you could have afforded it 40 years ago. You, your, your net worth has skyrocketed. But once you get in, uh, it's just you can't bring enough supply to market. And California's economy just keeps getting better and better, but it keeps getting more and more unequal. Yeah. Um, to, to add to that, um, the supply and demand in California uh, or, or in, in, at the, in the country at large is, is, as you said, the population is growing and the housing production has not kept up. Not only has the housing production not kept up, the housing production has been uh, overwhelmingly and I would say disgustingly disproportionate to single family homes. Uh, something it, it peaked in the 90s, but something like close above 90 percent i want to say closer to 95 percent of the homes created in the 80s and 90s were single family homes uh which are uh, as as we will i'm sure elaborate the the least sustainable um initially they they are the most affordable but uh at a, a larger societal cost they have a, a, a tremendous impact on our landscape in, in terms of the environment and, and long-term cost and uh, access to jobs and equitability. So it's, yeah, the, the, the disproportionate amount of single-family homes and, and suburban homes that have been built um, over the past, we'll, we'll say, you know, 30, 40 years has really exacerbated that housing shortage um, and brought out a lot of the, the uglier parts of um, of what we're we're dealing with now, uh, where urban centers are, um, yeah, they're just they're they're not as appealing. Um, I'm, I'm kind of butchering that, but yeah, uh, we need 
we need more housing. We need more types of housing. We need uh, dense housing. Uh, yeah, this has all been said before, but we we just the, the focus is not is is changing our course and adding housing in a way that we haven't done in probably sixty years. Right. More housing, an abundance of housing. Yeah. Majority of it market rate. Yeah. Like the market is not the worst. Uh, it's capitalism gets a very bad rap, but we that is largely due to the regulatory capture of our um of uh, of our regulatory frameworks you know if if we had more liberalized and i say that in the traditional sense like more liberalized um housing laws you'd have more apartments in places like west la uh, where people all things equal would want to live in west la close to the beach where uh you know uh, like very privileged people are where all the, the big firms are yeah, close to jobs close to amenities close to the things that people find appealing about la if there were a way to add yeah add higher density housing that just alleviates um a lot of traffic or the 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 congestion or the friction with that migration of people that want to be in that place but can't and have to commute from chino or whittier um, mm -hmm. to get to that state that so, uh, yeah, I, and the, you know, ironically or coincidentally, the, um, one of the biggest complaints that people have, well, let's say that live in West L.A., uh, one of the biggest complaints they have uh, about increasing density is, is, them, is the increase in traffic and the increase in congestion um, that is a, as a result of that increase in density. But that's not necessarily, that doesn't have to be the case if that density was added in an intelligent way where um, every single new person doesn't necessarily mean a new car mm -hmm. um, because those things seem inextricably linked in a place like California where it is assumed that if you are a resident of a place, you must own a vehicle and thus contribute mm -hmm. to the traffic, which is, um, you know, no one here is a stranger. No one in Los Angeles is a stranger to complaining about traffic. It is probably um, up there with homelessness and, you know, the top three or four things that people that people complain about or people experience uh, on a daily basis that, that, that they could they could only hope that would, they would never have to deal with again so mm -hmm. and cru crucially okay some of you listening right now will be like I live in LA or I live in a place where I don't have to deal with a ton of other people and it's easy for some people to focus on all the negatives that come with city living like okay there's more noise there's more people there's uh, uh, more, more traffic, more trash. Yeah, uh, more, yeah. more trash. But, but, but crucially, there are plenty of benefits as well. And we see this uh, in, in certain environments. Like, say, you live in Manhattan or San Francisco. You, you have, the more people you have per square mile, you have a lot more businesses. So if you want to do an errand, like get a haircut, you might not have to get into a car to go somewhere. You probably, with sufficient density, probably have one or two at, at least barbers within walking distance. And so suddenly you're out and about. You're walking. You're experiencing the city. You might smile at a stranger. You might have a, uh, like a, a, a fun interaction uh, while you're waiting in line for, uh, like to, to grab a coffee or something. Like these things are much more humanizing and pleasurable than sitting in your car 
ruminating over traffic. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so these, uh, and, and we see this in, uh, you don't have to go to Manhattan or, or envision that sort of lifestyle. You can go to, uh, if you've traveled throughout Europe, most of the most livable places on earth uh, in, as far as happiness, quality of life, affordability, are full of, uh, of uh, like apartment buildings that are four stories tall yeah. and very pleasant, yeah. very livable. Uh, they, they're charming. Uh, there is a sense of community uh, and a place of home and belonging that can be missing in a lot of suburbs. Yeah. Uh, if, if you if your next uh, door neighbor is hundreds of feet away from you, uh, well, then uh, you might you might feel a little bit lonely at times. Yeah, makes it a lot more more difficult to establish a sense of community when um, when you don't interact with uh, with the people that you live near. Um, and it's different for everyone, but you know it's it's certainly hard to avoid your neighbors when you live in a, in a dense environment. And, and that can be, you know, that can have its pros and cons, but uh, I feel like uh, at least in my experience, and I know you, you share the same, the same opinion, but um, there's a, there's a better chance of having a, a, a positive interaction with strangers or a positive connotation with those around you than there would be a, a negative one. Um, by, by and large, I feel like you're, um, more opportunities for uh, for a serendipitous, you know, pleasant experience with uh, with the people around you. So, mm-hmm. and especially when it's coupled with mixed income housing, like let's say eighty percent, uh, eighty five to ninety percent of the people in your building are your income bracket. You have tons of people to interact with uh, that you might relate to. You you feel uh, you might feel a lot safer than if you were to live. Uh, among uh, majority people that are uh, that have less means than you do, but crucially for that 10, 15 percent of people that are living in your building and maybe their children are going to the same schools as your children, that is uh, a dramatically different life than if they were surrounded by exclusively poor people, and it's also different for you uh, if you were surrounded exclusively by privileged people, if that is your lot in life. There's something very magical about uh, both the humbling effects of being around people that get by with less, as well as uh, being around people that might uh, have uh, more uh, industrious habits sure. yeah. and, and uh, more access to uh, privilege and... Uh, have different and more productive relationships with things like capital, with education. There's a sense of, I, I feel like there's a sense of uh, motivation or inspiration that, that can be the result of, of brushing shoulders with people mm-hmm. of, uh, of a higher social class or a higher socioeconomic bracket. Um, and and, and again, that, that could be cliche to say of a place like New York, but everyone talks about the energy there and that vigor that, that that New York seems to have is because everyone there is chasing something, is chasing the next the next thing. They're 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 taking their next step, um, and that's like the the rising tide raises all ships sort of mentality, where it's like you feel motivated by that um, by that 
exposure to success. So, right. So to wrap this up and go to the next point, we want a lot of housing, an abundance of housing, every sort of type of it. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll break it down a little bit as it relates to uh, homelessness, but that includes stuff like shelters, that includes uh, supportive housing, that includes a permanently affordable housing, and that means luxury housing too, uh, or what is understood to be luxury housing, which is market rate, yeah. market rate yeah. housing uh, in, uh, so market rate housing in poorer communities will uh, create investment and opportunities within those communities and apartments, including affordable apartments in wealthier communities will provide uh, opportunities for humility as uh, for the better position uh, as well as uh, access to more affordable labor. Uh, and then it'll, it'll offer uh, opportunities for uh, people with lesser means to not be surrounded by maybe poverty or violence. Mm -hmm and uh, could give them a fighting chance to really make it in our society. Uh, concentration of poverty is a bad thing. And uh, let's move on to the next point. Yeah. Um, and then crucially, as it relates to homelessness, once we have the housing, we would like the laws enforced. Uh, and uh, there's a carrot and stick approach to this where okay, we provide the housing once there are shelters, once uh, there will be less, there will be less supportive housing, there'll be less uh, permanently affordable housing immediately available, and maybe they won't be in the same place as the shelters are, but once there is an option other than being on the street, uh, we got to enforce the laws because uh there's the word criminalization and um it's a harsh word but the way the way some folks are living is quite intense uh, there's blatant drug culture there's blatant party atmosphere in places like venice beach uh and it's it can be seen as attractive to those on the fringes of society uh okay why should I pay $1,500 a month uh, for my studio in uh, <laughs> San Bernardino <laughs> when I could live on the beach in my tent uh, and do drugs all day for free? Uh, like for some people, you may laugh. Say home, like no one, no one thinks like that. People think like that. Some and uh, they're not always the most balanced folks in our society they too often come from abusive homes and aren't situated to uh really excel in our society but by implicitly uh creating a permissive environment we encourage such reckless behavior and as as we alluded to before people don't necessarily start out the way uh, the most visibly homeless uh, people in our society, like the, that you cross paths with and you can tell they're having some sort of episode, most people do not start out like that. They progress to that point in an environment that implicitly encourages uh, substance abuse, 
partying and uh, uh, just general debauchery, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, a sort of a, a, a lack of any, uh, yeah, a, a lack of structure. I mean, uh, they're once again, they're decades of of experience in, uh, particularly in Venice Beach, of people flocking to that neighborhood as a as a sort of um, haven for for lawlessness uh and there are some you know glamorized aspects of that as well with uh with like the beatniks and rock and roll and the artists that once in, uh, inhabited that, that neighborhood but um yeah in, in general it's become that the freak like the freak zone and not not enough i'm not trying to be you know uh discriminatory or harsh but it's just like it's i, I mean i i moved to la from new york and uh my office was above the freak show. It was the uh, um, the, the boardwalk, you know, sideshow attraction, and and that we, we should clarify the literal the literal freak zone. <laughs> yeah, this was the, it was the freak zone, uh, and and that's what the larger Venice has become, you know, has become known to symbolize is just like that's it's just this this crazy area that people yeah you know, people come from all over to to experience uh the the sort of chaos that that is venice beach mm-hmm. um yeah I, I you you mentioned um the importance of enforcing laws so once we have a solution uh and uh, let's say the uh, the abundant housing or adequate housing to accommodate these people uh, there would be some degree of enforcement, making sure that they abide by uh, these new these, these new conditions or this this opportunity for them to not live on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I I do feel like there would be some opposition just because there are people that that uh, that are actively avoiding any sort of boundaries that are set on their life. You know, there there's people that. That are intentionally out there on on the beach living in tents because they are eschewing all of the uh, of the you know common you know uh, just the common life the the average American life. But uh, like you said earlier, there are you know I would have to I'd have to assume there's just a large percentage of those people that that don't want to be out there. They don't they they didn't think that their life would end up. Um, you know, uh, a, a user or a, a homeless person um, on living in, on the streets of LA. So, uh, yeah. So let's let's talk about what some of these crimes are uh, and or quality of life issues. What are we talking about? So, for one, uh, unhoused people are dramatically more likely to litter. Uh, like, if for no other reason that they have less access to trash collection services they don't have trash cans uh they don't have private bathrooms in um, most situations so uh even in the best of scenarios they are at a disadvantage but you you put uh, substance abuse or mental health issues uh you're just gonna have dramatically greater uh likelihood of trashing our shared urban uh, or natural environment you go to uh, places like topanga beach or like in more dramatic examples skid row third street venice along the la river 
any encampment under any freeway overpass in the city. There's tons of trash. I've never seen LA so filthy in my entire life. It's it's a problem, and it sets the tone for everyone that passes through these areas. You you walk through Skid Row, you'd be forgiven for not thinking twice about throwing your trash uh, on the ground. It's, there's tons of it. You'll just be the smallest drop in the largest bucket. And uh, then uh, other issues is we have uh, tons of public defecation, and this leaches into our water supply. It makes our way uh, into the oceans, but also into our water reservoirs. <laughs> it, uh, it impacts our natural and built environment. Uh, like the amount, like some neighborhoods you have tons of feces all over. It's alarming how seemingly acceptable it's become to encounter, uh, yeah, feces and urine on our city streets. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it's sad. It's just sad. Several years ago, uh, San Diego had a hepatitis A outbreak. And it was, and the way you get hepatitis A is uh, you encounter fecal matter from people with hepatitis A. So you have unhoused people and people at large that are going through the city and, you know, there's, there's human shit everywhere. <laughs> so, like, and then if people have some sort of illness, like, they're, uh, it's not unforeseeable that your dog could walk on it. Uh, and then suddenly, uh, when you get back to your apartment, your dog's walking around your apartment and you might come into contact with it. And there was an outbreak where, if I'm not mistaken, 20 people died, hmm. uh, mostly unhoused people, yeah. if not exclusively unhoused people. So this is a, uh, that's a serious thing. We have assaults on uh, innocent bystanders, assaults on the unhoused, assaults um, by the unhoused. Uh, it's not the best of ideas to have mentally unstable people having episodes in mass in our public environments. It's a recipe for disaster. And we see it uh, also with wildfires. Uh, there have been several wildfires throughout California that have been caused by homelessness. If you think about it, if you're homeless, a place you're less likely to be harassed is out in the wilderness, which one of the great things about California is we have tons of wilderness not far from the cities. However, a lot of these uh, w- like wilderness areas are notoriously dry and brush fires are very easy to occur. So if you have unhoused people in tents cooking their dinner or smoking uh, any sort of substance that they might be smoking, it is not unforeseeable that fires could happen, especially if there are drugs involved. Uh, There's uh, 50% of LA... uh, LAFD's responses to fires are around homeless encampments. Mm. That's an unacceptable risk considering uh, we live in a dense urban environment surrounded by (laughs) (laughs) brush. Yeah, by by, uh, kindling. Mm -hmm. Um, It it would be interesting to see if you could extrapolate the the financial burden of just the arson alone, you know, of just like 
how much public resources are, are being dedicated to uh, to fighting fires uh, that have that have been the result of, of some activity with uh, with the homeless. And we have just general crime. We have theft of mail, car break-ins. Um, uh, last year, um, my house was broken into, uh, presumably by unhoused folks. Uh, and it was not the first time it happened. It happens every few years. Um, we have, in certain neighborhoods, you, you just have a high degree of lawlessness. You have sexual battery of people uh, under the influence of drugs. Again, these are mostly people that are unhoused. You're creating unacceptably dangerous environments and uh, without proper regulation and policing, heinous things do happen. It's naive to think that they don't. And these are happening. And quality of life in California cities has substantially deteriorated uh, despite the astronomical cost of living. Uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting, uh, the, the inverse relation of quality of life to cost of living. But it, it, again, another interesting point to consider uh, when seeing how, how divergent those are becoming. Um, and and to, to, to speak about um, the, the general lawlessness and sort of chaos around the, the homeless camps, I mean, the, the most recent and, and probably one of the more publicized and controversial incidents was the clearing of, uh, of the Echo Park, uh, Echo Park Lake homeless encampments uh, a few months ago where, you know, there was, it was something like 170, you know, residents of the park that were living uh, within park boundaries and tents and makeshift accommodations and, you know, four homicides and countless, um, countless incidents of, uh, abuse, you know, from, yeah, like you said, from, from one another, you know, a homeless person to another, a homeless person to just a, to a house person from, there was animal abuse, there was, yeah, overdose, there was, it was just, it was a lot of, um, yeah, as you said, a lot of unacceptable, uh, crime and, and just, just poor behavior um, in that case study of 170 people who came to occupy Echo Park Lake for the better part of a year, um, maybe a little bit longer, but that's, you know, taking taking the crime stats out of just that small sample is like, that, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be acceptable um, if it were extended out to, to reflect the, the larger population in Los Angeles. So, um, uh, obviously, any, anyone that was living in LA or, or, or came across that news knows that it was highly publicized and, and very controversial. But if you think for for even a second, uh, um, if those numbers were to be uh, proportionately strewn across uh, the city of Los Angeles, you know, it, it's just like you know, it's just not acceptable. It's just that's and that's that's uh, that's the moral of the story. We just we need to we need to address these things. So. So, at, how did we get here, Michael? Uh, shall we talk about Jones for the city of L.A.? Talk about Jones for the city of L.A. Uh, so, Jones versus the city of L.A. Oh, was, uh, oh okay. Uh, was a case, uh, if, if I recall the details correctly, it was in 2005. And uh, a ninth uh, district circuit court uh, ruled that because uh, there was not an adequate re uh, uh, amount of alternatives to being homeless, shelter beds, supportive housing, uh, enforcing vagrancy uh, 
laws, uh, specifically as it relates to sleeping on the sidewalk, was uh, deemed to be cruel and unusual punishment. If, if the homeless have nowhere to go, uh, you, you can't criminalize being on the street. Mm. And so City of L.A. came to a, um, uh, uh, an agreement with ACLU. And they, uh, this was back in 2005, and they agreed that, okay, until we build a certain number of shelters and supportive housing, I think it was um, like it was fifteen hundred uh, shelter beds uh, and uh, probably another twelve hundred of supportive housing. Uh, until that happens, they will allow sleeping on the sidewalk in the tent uh, between the hours of nine p.m. to six a.m. Now, in in that time since, we have surpassed the number of shelter beds that uh, that was agreed upon and the number of supportive housing beds but also in that same amount of time homelessness has skyrocketed it's probably at least twice as much uh, I'm, homeless I'm, I'm, in 15 yeah. years i'm trying to uh to look that up now the homeless population in los angeles at mm-hmm. that time but yeah so but also in that same amount of time la has not uh, enforced the uh, no uh, no tents on the sidewalks between uh, 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. You go many parts of town, there are tents all over all the time. It's practically the residence full full time, and this is um, an Americans with Disabilities Act issue. You know, if you can't use the sidewalk. Uh, if you're an able-bodied person or a disabled person, uh, you can't use the sidewalk. You can't use our public infrastructure to get around. It also makes certain parts of town more uncomfortable, more eerie, especially if you're a woman. Uh, our park space is less desirable to be in when... Yeah, a lot less appealing when, uh, when it's not a park and it's, uh, you know acting as a as a temporary shelter for mm-hmm. a lot of people right I'm a little late to uh, to that that previous point but I'm seeing here an article from 2005 in the LA Times that says that there was 35,000 approximately 35,000 people experiencing um, chronic homelessness at that time so and now again we're at least 60,000 so we're mm-hmm. close to double that amount um, in the years since mm-hmm. uh, LA LA versus Jones. Right. Uh, so, what type of facilities are we going to need to tackle this problem? Uh, we're going to need a mix of shelters, permanent affordable housing, supportive housing, mental health hospitals, and uh, a Th- more controversial. This is the most exciting one. I, I yeah, I'm happy to dig into this one here. Go ahead. Uh, I I I argue we need some uh, hedonism retreats. Yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that, and then I'll accept all your hate mail <laughs> later. Um, so the first one, to meaningfully address the problem at scale within L.A. County, I think, I, and I would argue, the most effective means of alleviating the problem of most visible homelessness is to create shelters. Uh, these, these are short-term roof over your head, with lockers for your belongings, 
and showers. It's uh, the bare minimum for hygiene and shelter for the elements. Mm. And you have on-site security to protect the more vulnerable. Uh, and the positives of this is they're uh, the easiest, cheapest, and quickest to build uh, at the scale we would need to overcome this problem as far as, okay, uh, we don't want you sleeping on the sidewalk. You can go here. Uh, and if every neighborhood in L.A. County uh, had just a few beds uh, or or was like a, uh, a short distance away from an adjacent neighborhood that had enough beds, uh, then you can, you can meaningfully say, hey, you can't sleep on the sidewalk in your tent. You need to go to the shelter because sleeping on the sidewalk is illegal. And we can meaningfully enforce uh, our laws in places like Venice Beach, West LA, downtown. Uh, these are uh, places where property values are very high. Uh, demand to be in is very high for everyone. Uh, and uh, not surprisingly by the homeless as well. But we can't build enough uh permanent affordable housing for 60,000 people in uh, let's say the LA basin. Like we shelters are the first step of, okay, you can't be on the street. We're going to put you here. And then you, uh, we will give you resources for the next step, Hmm. but sleeping on the sidewalk or sleeping in a tent in the mountains is no longer an option. Not acceptable. Not acceptable. Okay, and then once, uh, once we have enough shelters, which are again are the most quickly scalable, uh, then we have a permanent, uh, permanent affordable housing. Now uh, this is included in the transit-oriented development plans of California cities, where, as we said earlier, okay, we 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 allow developers to build more housing adjacent to transit and adjacent to jobs. Um, if they set aside some amount of it as permanently affordable housing. Now, uh, another way we can, uh, we can approach affordable housing is by expanding Section 8 at the federal level. And for those of you who don't know, federal, uh, Section 8 is a federal program where the government subsidizes uh, two-thirds of the rent. And the good thing about this is that it is a market-oriented solution. So... Landlords like it, uh, developers might otherwise like it because it's reliable money coming in from the government. Uh, at, at the very least, two-thirds of it is coming in from the government. And the amount that's paid out is according to area median income. And the good thing about this is the, uh, the landlords can invest into the housing stock, whereas with some other permanently affordable housing that is uh, completely subsidized by the government, it tends to not be sustainably invested in. Uh, it, it does not collect enough rent and it does not uh, get continued financial support from the government. And so you have what we have in a lot of East Coast cities of slumification of, of affordable housing. And this can be very uh, can Im- impact quality of life for folks and lead to 
a lot of urban blight, as well as financial uh, or mental unwellness. Yeah, there's a there seems to be a certain degree of neglect in these sort of social programs that don't have um, in a, an immediate positive impact, at least from the outside perspective. It's just you see these things that uh, whatever section eight houses, uh, section eight housing blocks, or or um, you know low income housing, and you're and it's probably one of the easiest things to say for the government to say, oh yeah, we're just going to cut funding for this because um, the impacts of that of that program aren't immediately known to the general population or to those people that are in charge of of uh, of continued funding. So it's just like like any other social program. Um, whose whose impacts might not be uh, so quantifiable that uh, that it's it's easier for them to be neglected and underfunded. And uh, affordable housing can and should be built um, ideally as mixed income uh, housing that is uh, driven primarily by the free market, which costs the taxpayer and uh, local, state, and federal governments effectively zero. Uh, however, 100% uh, uh, permanent affordable housing uh, can, like, can be built and can more effectively be built uh, in maybe not West LA or City of San Francisco. Maybe in places like uh, San Bernardino or uh, Riverside, Lancaster, or even other less in-demand areas of L.A. County, uh, and which will go to uh, supportive housing. Supportive housing is permanent affordable housing that's paired with on-site services like mental health care, job training, addiction treatment. Uh, these, again, if you think about it, what is the bridge between supportive housing and presumably getting on your feet in the free market, uh, taking the training wheels off? It's like, is it realistic to expect people that were uh, vulnerable to go from supportive housing to living in Brentwood or most parts of LA County, it's it's tough. It's a big gap. Uh, these these are very tough, expensive, competitive places for everyone. Um, perhaps it makes more sense to have supportive housing in less uh, expensive markets, places within San Bernardino or Riverside counties where, you know, if you're not highly educated, you can more likely get a job. And especially, uh, like Michael, you and I talk about uh, a lot of work in this country is uh, we leave a lot of jobs on the table by not legalizing housing. Housing and housing construction throughout societies all over the world is a huge, huge driver of jobs. And these are blue-collar jobs uh, in construction, 
jobs or white collar jobs uh, in architecture and engineering. This is a huge driver of our economy, as well as material productions. The thought that we curtail so much of it so dramatically and dig ourselves deeper into this hole of housing unaffordability is just unconscionable. So if we legalized housing in places within LA County, but also San Bernardino County, uh, Riverside County, Orange County, well, it's not uh, unfathomable that you can live in supportive housing and maybe work with your hands in, uh, in some trade that you don't need a college education for, that uh, if you apply yourself and a lot of people would find a great amount of meaning in working with their hands and uh, building something of lasting uh, value, that is a reasonable bridge to getting on your feet and making something of yourself in this life. So uh, liberalizing our housing laws and our zoning, as well as creating supportive housing where presumably we imagine a lot of the growth to be. And the growth, uh, a lot of the low-hanging fruit is outside of L.A. County. I, we, we both would argue that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit within L.A. County as well. Absolutely. And build supportive housing everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but the, the numbers on the ground suggest that we can build more units at scale and uh, as well as the healthcare uh, professionals that would be needed could be paid more uh, less and we can get more uh, as far as uh, balancing cost of living with the services we're getting in the less desirable uh, or the less in-demand markets in California. And these are not no man's land. It's like plenty of people commute out from these places into LA every day. And if they have family, if they have a support network in LA, it's not otherwise a death sentence mm. uh, or unconscionable for them. Okay, uh, like people, people have family in California, but then they move to Nevada or Arizona or Texas, and they do it for their own economic uh, prosperity or their mental well-being like uh, okay i will need to make less money to flourish in a place like reno than i will in la county and the same is true of fresno or bakersfield there's this odd stigma that we encounter in these uh urbanism or social justice circles where the uh like the supportive or affordable housing has to be in places like downtown Los Angeles. Yeah. It has to be in places like West LA or uh, broadly LA County. And it should be everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. But we can scale. This problem is so deep and so profound that all options need to be on the table and we get more bang for our buck in the outer markets. You, Going back to uh, your question originally, asking um, about what my, you know, the ideal landscape, uh, specifically here in California, 
what the, how that would take shape. And I, I mentioned the transit-oriented development that's that's been kind of a hot-button issue. And, and thinking about what you're saying now, um, it's it's worth it's worth more uh, more consideration, more thought to to maybe encourage those supportive housing developments uh, along. This is specifically for Los Angeles, but along our the MetroLink rail network, which extends uh, from downtown LA up as far north as Palmdale, as far east as San Bernardino. It goes down to San Diego and then out to Ventura. Um, but if you uh, were to take a ride on on any one of those lines, you would be uh, you know shocked to see at shocked to see how um, inefficient land uses adjacent to those stations. And so think thinking about uh, the larger goal of urbanizing or um, densifying those station areas. Uh, you know, it, it's just an interesting thought to say, okay, cool. Like we, we have, um, we have a half a mile, you know, uh, area or half a mile radius around this transit station. Like thinking about how you would incorporate, let's say, fifteen percent of that of the of the buildable area in that quarter mile radius, and saying we're going to dedicate that to or to supportive housing. Um, and, and thinking that there would be ways or opportunities for the people that are living in those in those houses or living in that in those apartments to then contribute to the uh, the general improvement of that area. So, uh, as an example, you know you have uh, you have a station out in Somar, and you say, "Cool, we have this plan to uh, to densify this area to create a little bit a walkable neighborhood um, and some some sort of a hub for an area that otherwise doesn't have that." Let's start with creating supportive housing there, 100 units, and then and 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 you know just as an example, you know maybe 50, maybe 60 of people working uh, are living in that supportive housing are also uh, part of the construction trade that could then be used uh, and employed in that neighborhood as the rest of that neighborhood begins to to urbanize or, or densify, um, and that would be like maybe like the first building block, saying all right, we're, we're gonna. We're going to create housing for a workforce that will then be dedicated to building and to alleviating housing woes uh, in the region, uh, and they just happen to be, you know, right there across the street from other future development sites uh, that will that will hopefully see uh, an increase in housing or construction um, right there uh, that could serve the broader population. You know, not supportive housing, but uh, you, you know, um, all all sorts of housing, uh, just all dense housing. So. Kind of a cool thought, I think. Yeah. Uh, the next, the next stage of the spectrum of housing that uh, has really fallen out of favor in a lot of circles. But um, curiously, we had mental hospitals at one point in California, and uh, <laughs> nationwide, it is like I have mental hospitals really just fallen out of favor across the board. Yeah, uh, going back to uh, to what we were saying about Section Eight housing, it's one of those things where it's kind of shielded from from the public's eye, uh, and very easy to remove funding from something that no one really knows. You know, it's not shrouded in secrecy, but it's it's something that uh, is not top of mind for for uh, for taxpayers. So it's easy to say, you know, uh, let's let's cut funding for it, which is what happened um, pretty consistently. 
after World War II, and I, we've talked about that before as well, but the, the, de the decline in, uh, in funding for and the creation of, uh, of mental hospitals uh, is, is pretty well documented, um, but the, those were things that existed with, with regularity throughout the country. Um, as well as heinous immoral behavior within those absolutely. mental hospitals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, some people... Uh, it seems uh, of of the um, homeless population, I want to say a very small sliver of the homeless population, uh, and, and they tend to be the most visible and the ones that stick out the most, but a very small sliver of the homeless population is, um, I don't like the idea of saying irredeemable, but they don't play well with others. Hmm. They can safely be said to be a hazard to themselves as well as a hazard to others. And um, I, I, don't, I don't know if we have quantifiable uh, data as to what percentage of the homeless population is that. But these people exist, and we, they should be somewhere. It doesn't seem uh, sensible that they should be on our streets. Um, they could either be in prison, which I'm not particularly an advocate for, or they could be in particular institutions um, where they uh, they can be looked out for at, and you know um, yeah prevent them from harming others within our society. And uh, uh, these folks need help. And I while I don't otherwise like interning people against their will anywhere. Uh, if they refuse to accept other resources or if they're um, unable or unwilling to accept any sort of help, uh, they we need a place for them to go. Yeah, it, it's um, yeah. The, the the stigma tends to be a little bit more of the the one flew over the cuckoo's nest sort of lo loony bin. Atmosphere that uh, that that has garnered uh, a, a negative perception of what an institution could be for people. But you speak of their unwillingness to to fit into into society. Um, yeah. At, at what point do we prioritize their refusal to embrace help or to embrace support um, over the you know the community around them that they would be infringing on if they are out there um, acting recklessly or without without any sense of respect or um, yeah just without any uh, civility civility um, civility civility so without any civility we have these people out there roaming the streets causing harm um, at what point again do we prioritize their freedom over the the negative impact that they might have on the people around them. Right. So there's a case to be made for for reopening and reinstituting, uh, reopening um, mental hospitals and, and reinstituting people that, uh, that, that probably should be there. Mm -hmm. And finally... This uh, is the exciting one. Yeah, this is the one that you're yeah. going to dig into. I'm, I'm yeah, this is, uh, this is thinking outside the box. Uh, and uh, so, some of you listening to this might hate me for even entertaining this idea. Um, but here, here it goes. 
the other, the final uh, of the spectrum of housing options is could be what I what I might call uh, hedonism retreats, and uh, you build these in places far from our city centers where you can build uh, facilities uh, at scale, and and these will be somewhere. Um, it'll be a mix between prison and club med. <laughs> uh, and uh, these are places that uh, people are not interned involuntarily. They can uh, voluntarily choose to go to and voluntarily choose to leave. But these are places with verified drugs and alcohol, with emergency medical services. Uh, and it's not a place for people to get clean. Uh, and And we know, and if you ask the homeless population, some people are happy doing drugs life is hard life can be especially uh, hellish for certain people and the only times that they feel uh, not in agony are when they're messed up on drugs and alcohol mm. and that's not a life that I would want for myself and it's not a life that your loved ones would want for you but some people uh, truly just want to destroy themselves in peace uh, and it's more cost-effective and equitable for society if we allow them to do so uh, on our dime, away from our city centers. And yeah, this is incredibly weird, and it's uncomfortable, but it's literally less weird than what we are doing now and what yeah. is currently the status yeah. quo. So, I, I, again, because I want to unpack a little bit more of this... Uh, uh, hedonistic retreat so that uh, in the event that we that we are getting um, an email from from listeners that we, we can uh, quell their concerns or answer their questions this the, the FAQ for the hedon retreat but um, I, I, you've thought about this extensively mm -hmm. I, I suspect I mean would you would you say that there are some qualifications for for uh, entrance like where you would have to have a proven some uh, proven history of using drugs or abusing drugs. Like, what if you were just this eighteen-year-old kid that says, "Oh, I can buy tobacco now," but like, or you know, the the equivalent of saying you 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 have reached a certain age where you feel like you are entitled to uh, experimenting with illicit substances. So, like, you uh, yeah, a high school student that drives out to the this hypothetical hedonistic retreat. And wants to try uh, wants to try crystal meth for the first time. I mean, I, I would I would have to assume there is some evaluation mm -hmm. on who's admitted to these things, mm -hmm. um, and it would be complicated to yeah, it would be complicated to regulate. But the, yeah, the idea is is certainly out of the box, but uh, um, something worth entertaining. But yeah, uh, I would agree with that. Yeah, this is this is not. Uh, something that is the first resort, and I think there should be counseling uh, to discourage people from living this lifestyle. And they and this sh there should be opportunities to connect you away from this. If and when you hit that bottom, and you're like, okay, this is fucked up. I I need to get things in order, and then we'll put you on the first uh, chartered bus to. Uh, to a shelter yeah. or supportive uh, institution, wherever you need to go for your family. Um, and, and yes, it's not like 
come on in and uh, take all the drugs you want. And then uh, I, there is a process. Uh, I would imagine there'd be an application, an evaluation of some sort. Mm. And then but once you're, once you are in the system, then you could come in and yeah. out as you please. Yeah. Uh, as you, as you deem uh, yeah, fit for to, to, uh, to scratch that itch that you might have. Let me ask you, Michael. Would you would you go to one of these places? I I, uh, I wouldn't. Yeah, and, mm. and that's a, that is a great question. I was thinking about that as you were explaining it, because um, a lot of the people that that would are probably uh, probably already well versed in the substances that that would be offered at, at a serve at a retreat like this, um, and and knowing that there's oh there's you know there's a there's a safe place or a place where I can get these drugs for free. Um, might be appealing for for those people already struggling with uh, with that addiction. Um, I have a hard time seeing. Uh, I have a hard time seeing how there uh, are the adoption rate of like new users. I, I I don't I don't foresee that being an issue. But that's just because I'm approaching this with from my own perspective of saying like there's no way in hell I would voluntarily check into uh to a drug den so that I could you know, go on a bender for three days, but, um, you know, I'm not everyone, you know, you and I aren't people that are currently dealing with this. You know, I, I, I don't know that I hopefully I'll, I'll never be in that position, but, um, it's hard to say how people would res- respond to that access to something that is so, uh, you know, so looked down upon. These are not romantic places. Yeah. These are not places that people of sound mind or, um, meaningful opportunities in their lives would ever entertain mm. uh and especially uh you know it, it might be one thing upon opening and uh, like perhaps the first week will look very very different than, <laughs> than what it would look like yeah, several years in. yeah the, there's one case study that i can think of something similar that uh i don't know if, if we've talked about it before but uh it, two years ago i was on uh, a tour of Amsterdam, it was it was a lovely tour. Uh, I'm hosted by this gal Alex, who was a resident of uh, of the city, and it was in the same vein of the Humans of New York series, but it was the Humans of Amsterdam, and uh, she she took us on a tour of all the things that made Amsterdam the unique place that it is. And, and one of those one of those uh, pit stops, or one of the stops along that tour, was a brothel um, where we got to have an open conversation with the, with the madam of that brothel who talked about some things that are that, uh, some programs in place in, in a place like Amsterdam where they have a tax on um, on sex services on, on sex work that goes to fund an agency that helps helps people that are involved in sex work uh, remove themselves from that industry which is mm-hmm. which is really cool to hear because it you know I come to find out that a lot of the people that are involved in in, um, in sex work in Amsterdam aren't people from the Netherlands or aren't even people mm-hmm. from uh, from modern Europe but from people from um, you know uh, the Balkans area is what, what what I was told in that in that um, in that little uh, tour but uh, yeah a lot of people from from uh, from Russia and from uh, poor parts of Europe that come there for money because they they think oh I can make more money there in a week than I would be able to make in a month in, right. in their home country so they see it as an opportunity 
uh, in not their first uh, their first choice for uh, for a career, but they see it as an opportunity to make money, and they and they flock there for that reason. Um, but going back to yeah, this this program that, that exists in Amsterdam, uh, a tax on on all sex work or all sex services that goes to then fund um, supportive services for for sex workers to uh, to acclimate to a different life, which is awesome. And and I would assume that there there would be some some sort of similarities uh, in, in a place like a hedonistic retreat where yeah you can go there uh, and you can you can scratch that itch for for uh, for whatever whatever your poison is whatever that illicit substance is but there would be people there that could help you uh, they could help you like a rehab like you said like a club med get help you uh, remove yourself from from that uh, that temptation so so uh, prostitution is a great parallel to this because in countries that approach the legalizing and regulating uh, uh, that they approach it in that way as opposed to outright criminalization it's a meaningful uh, cudgel against trafficking against violence against women and so we know that this is happening it's otherwise undesirable it's otherwise arguably a moral behavior prostitution and yet, by having a legal place to do it in a comparatively safe environment um, might be the lesser of the evils mm-hmm. uh, for society at large. Because let's, let's not be naive. Uh, with prostitution, you have tons of trafficking. You have an in, entire um, criminal underbelly, a criminal economy around things like prostitution or drugs. And so you go to places like Skid Row or Venice and you have people that are addicted to drugs and you also have the criminal enterprise that caters to that population. And then you have uh, drug wars um, and cartels and suddenly uh, things are a lot more precarious and lawless. So giving people an option where, all right, instead of being on Venice Beach and having to uh, scrape by to uh, get enough money to buy from this dealer who uh, threatens my life sometimes, uh, like if I can go somewhere where I can get my fix, live off of, uh, live not on the street, and then... I don't know, but like maybe in the best of circumstances, uh, would hit rock bottom in a comparatively safe environment. I'm like, wait a second, what the fuck am I doing? This is crazy. Uh, maybe I should call my cousin. Yeah. In the yeah. best of scenarios, yeah, yeah. Uh, versus like the hard city living uh, and all of the externalities of that that we are all absorbing. Uh, it might be the lesser of the evils. Yeah. Man, that's a really, yeah, it's such an interesting suggestion, truly. Uh, yeah, I would love love to get some feedback from from other people on what they what they think of something like that. And, and the other uh, the other concern I have is, uh, you know, we have uh, tons of drugs cut with fentanyl these days. And, uh, and if not fentanyl today, <laughs> it could be something else tomorrow. 
uh, you have no idea what you're getting. And so this puts the uh, people at, uh, at the mercy of what some unscrupulous dealer decides to give them. Yeah. Uh, versus in this scenario, we're not giving them fake drugs. We're giving them the real stuff in um, controlled environments. They're monitored. They're given um, reasonable uh, amounts of it at yeah. a time. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, you'd have access. You'd have control of the dosage, control of the of the environment, control of their reaction to the drugs. I mean, there's just a lot more, um, a, a, a lot less, um, a, a lot less risk, a lot less mm -hmm. in unknowns in creating a place for all of this behavior that already happens in in our city streets to happen in, in an environment that has uh, that has just more. Um, yeah, more control. Yeah, clean needles. Yeah. Hmm. A play, a, a presumably a bathroom, a toilet that they yeah. might use rather than the sidewalk. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you can send your hate mail. At <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So once, once these various options are provided, uh, there's no reason not to enforce vagrancy laws and quality of life offenses uh, we don't have to relinquish our cities to the unhoused and substance abuse and mental illness uh, we like we can we can take back our cities from these scourges meaningfully help people at scale uh, and, and where where should these places go? We have tons of uh, city and state-owned land within our city centers. We have uh, tons of industrial land that could be bought and could uh, we can build shelters upon. And these industrial areas are uh, they they tend to not have NIMBY neighbors. Uh, they tend to uh, be in areas where you can make a lot of noise and. Uh, and uh, you could very easily build out uh, shelter beds at scale and facilities for them that are not going to threaten uh, adjacent homeowners uh, with their property values going down. Um, we have well, we we have we have a lot of city and state-owned parking lots and uh, underused uh, facilities. We have within LA, the LA County Hospital, they have that, uh, they have that general hospital building oh, yeah. that hasn't been used since 2008. Yeah. And it's, you can easily put 1,000 to 1,500 beds in there. Yeah. And it's, it's built out like a hospital. And it's immediately adjacent to an actual <laughs> hospital that serves underprivileged communities. Yeah. Um, so you can't really ask for a more ideal environment in an urban setting than that. Also within the VA, uh, the VA campus in West LA, uh, right along the perimeter, you have hundreds of homeless. Uh, why not? And, and they have, uh, to my understanding, tons of unused 
uh, square footage within the uh, yeah, the grounds yeah. and unused buildings, why not repurpose it for on-house veterans, of which there are countless. There's um there is a a temporary shelter going up across from my house in Echo Park. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's 67 beds. Um, thinking about this this solution uh, in greater detail, you know, it, it would be it would be interesting to see the the city supply, let's say, 60,000 temporary shelters to like just build them without a location for them in mind to say like well, well like whatever we'll get 50,000 shelters built and for anyone that hasn't seen them they are very simple structures uh, they they're probably eight feet long by by eight feet wide they're little little cubes with a, with a little gable roof on top um i i need to do some research i need to do some digging but the 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 accommodations and the the shelters built across from my house they are on private land I, i'm wondering if there would be some way to partner with landowners that are currently sitting on underutilized property and and saying that if we can host x amount of beds on your property for a year um you know they might shorten the the entitlements process or shorten the permitting time or the permitting cost for that landowner to later develop that into something uh, to, to into permanent housing. I mean, it would be kind of a it would kind of a cool thought, I guess, to to work with uh, landowners across the city that have larger underutilized parcels and say, um, we will, you know, the city might subsidize the cost of uh, of utility relocation or supplying that parcel with uh, with um, with uh, you know higher power utilities or water or 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 just working together. Um, to say, if you, as a city, if as a, as, a, as a property owner, if you accommodate 67 people here for one year, we will reduce the cost of permits or we will somehow make it easier for you to, to later improve that land, um, which yeah, I'm not sure if that's the case for, for this, this particular property across from my house. But, um, but I think that, that there could be some, some traction there as well. As long as we're on other um, proposals, well, how about why don't in the future we take affordable housing funds that are approved of in the future and invest in the homeless by offering them training and jobs in housing construction? And if they meet a certain number of hours, they can be offered affordable units in one of the completed projects. Hmm. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yes, like if uh, I mean the good folks among them that are down on their luck and are willing to work, they will help fill our deep labor shortage to update our housing infrastructure. So, like one of the things that kills me about this whole problem is like we have such a need for labor when it comes to the construction trades, and we have so many people like you and I work in construction. There's so much work to do and it's so difficult to find people that are willing to do it and um well that's what i was going back to with the supportive housing i mean you would think that that would be the 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 bridge between um between living on the streets or or, or living with inadequate means and and finding yourself in an industry that actually does pay well the blue collar jobs that we 
have turned our backs on in the last 60, 70 years in, in the U.S. Uh, and say, all right, cool, like we're going we're gonna to build that supportive housing in a neighborhood that will see continued improvement. And uh, within that, yeah, within that building, like I said, X amount of those people would be trained in construction to, to, to be uh, at ground zero for other construction-related projects in the neighborhood. Because, um, yeah, we've talked about it at, at great lengths, but, you know, um, with both of us working in construction, we see how much money people can make without even completing, uh, you know, even completing high school, without even having their GED. Uh, you, you can be trained at Pasadena City College in welding and be making $115,000 a year as a union welder building stuff downtown, and you don't, you don't necessarily need to have a high school degree. You can be working with your hands, and that's, that provides some le level of satisfaction for these people that I think is otherwise not present in their life, which is, you know, could be why, could be contributing to the fact that they are you know, looking to drugs or looking to alcohol a as a way to just right. escape because they just don't have a purpose. That, that general lack of purpose is, um, is a huge problem. Uh, and, and being able to alleviate that with meaningful work uh, in the construction industry would, seems like there's a, there's, there's, there's a, a void that can be filled. There's a gap. There's mm -hmm. th that. This is the bridge that, we're, that we need to be creating. So, right. and um, tie it up in a neat bow, because this has run long enough. And, <laughs> and uh, if you've made it this far, yeah, uh, stick around. Yeah, thank, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, so tie it up in a neat bow. The whole goal of our quest of urbanism is we we truly believe in our heart of hearts that it invigorates the human spirit uh it's much more gratifying to contribute to community uh and be a part of a community than it is to uh live in your detached suburban home and drive and not interact with anyone all day uh and then especially now with white collar work being online uh, you can go your whole day without interacting with anyone outside your household and that, uh, speaking from personal experience, is not when I'm happiest. I'm happiest when I'm interacting with people and remember, hey, life is this weird, surreal thing. And we're in this together. And um, I'm not separate from you. And you're not separate from me. And, to, and if we find a way to live and work together, we can make magical things happen. Um, well said. Yeah. Love it, great. Let's let's get back to a strong sense of community, and that starts with a with a strong city. Right, yeah. This is this is a labor of love. Um, whoever you are, we don't hate you. Uh, we want to live with you, and um, urbanism is our way of uh, doing it. It it requires sacrifices from all of us, and uh, that uh, that is an old American ideal of. Uh, us striving for a greater good uh and uh if you'd excuse the cheesy uh uh appeal to the past like ask not what your country could do for you you know like when you are in service of something greater than yourself you find meaning and gratification and there's a lot more than just increasing your net worth uh, by 
you know, preventing apartments in your neighborhood and your your housing prices and uh, the, the the cost of your home going up. There's more to life, and I I wish we could all come together and find that for ourselves. Yeah. Embrace that community. Right. Anything to add, Michael? Uh, I've got nothing. Yeah, I've, you you beautifully summarized uh, the larger quest here. Um, yeah, nice work. Great. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I, Michael, we've been talking about this for a long time, and I'm I'm happy we made it happen. We, yeah, we did. But, uh, yeah, we're we're working out some kinks, but yeah, this is this has been an exciting uh, an exciting discussion, and uh, and the potential for for. Uh, expanding on some of these ideas is really tantalizing in a way uh, that is very nerdy and uh, uh, yeah, it's I'm excited. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're gonna iterate through it. We're gonna we're gonna make these nerdy ass topics a lot more uh, approachable and manageable. And we're gonna we're we're not the worst. <laughs> but we're definitely not. Promise. Yeah. Well, we're not as bad as our detractors would have you believe. Uh, so. Uh, with that, this has been Thoughtful Monsters, episode one. Uh, Thank you for listening. Yeah, hope you listen next time. Take care. Bye.